If you're new with us today, I just want to, to give a brief word to let you know that today is going to be a little bit longer than usual because, you know, we had the celebration for the booth and, and our prayer time, and, and it didn't help that I wrote a 12-page sermon, so there you go. And, uh, but I cut it down to six just for you guys because I care. But uh, I care because I want you to come back. But as... <laughs> But uh, we're going to kind of just get into it today because there's a lot to cover. And so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to follow along in the scriptures, we're in Matthew 27. Uh, my, my big hope and plan is to, to get through the crucifixion and the resurrection before we start celebrating Christ's birth in December. So uh, that's where we're going. And uh, as we go through this, as we've gone through the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew... Matthew is a very stylized author. He uses a lot of kind of literary tools as he writes, and he writes in a very distinct kind of pattern when he lays things out. And as you read through Matthew, and I would encourage you to read chapters 26 and 27 uh, sometime this week, and just notice that while Jesus is in the center of the story, he doesn't say a whole lot in these two chapters. And, and most of the, most of the, uh, the action is in the characters around Jesus. And this includes his crucifixion, which we'll look at next week. There's the, Matthew focuses on the people around him, and he does this in kind of a way that, that, the, that Jesus is a reflection of, of our sin, particularly the sin of pride as he's going through the crucifixion. And you think about it, you had the high priest Caiaphas, who had the pride of, of wanting to be in power and in authority to the point where he found Jesus to be too inconvenient to live. You had the pride of Peter, uh, who, you know, very proudly boasted that he would never, ever turn his back on Christ only to find himself crumble when he's interrogated by a little girl. Uh, you have the pride of Judas, who we don't really know all his uh, motivations for motives for uh, betraying Jesus, but he did. And, uh, and then regrets it so deeply that he commits suicide, which is a, just, in a way, kind of a weird form of pride that he believes that he's just the worst person ever and there is no redemption for him. And then we get in today about, uh, uh, we see another person, character being brought into the story, and we're going to see that he also expresses a form of pride, uh, which ends up bringing him on the wrong side of history. And so as we go through this, uh, I want you to be aware of a couple things when we read through this passage. Uh, one is Matthew, uh, he has this style where he puts the most important thing of any story kind of in the middle of it. So as we read through it, see if you can pick up on what Matthew seems to think is important. And also just know that we're going to be looking at this character, Pontius Pilate, pretty much just through Matthew's view. Because the Gospels all have different unique points of view. Uh, particularly the Gospel of John has a lot about Pilate that we're not going to get into in this story. We're going to look at what Matthew has to say. But, uh, but you'll see in there that he still uses a certain style, and uh, we'll find out what we get to learn from this. So let's just get into it. Matthew 27, chapter, uh, verse 11, begins like this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. 
Now it was the governor's custom at the feast, speaking about Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barnabas. Oh, Barabbas, sorry. Not Barnabas. Barnabas is a good guy. Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to reach to you, Barabbas? Who ironically, Barabbas means son of God. His name is, just to let you know, Bar is son, Abba, Abba Father. Or Jesus, who is called the Christ. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then they released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Like many people that we meet in the Bible, Pilate is a very multidimensional guy. He's not, a, he's not a simple guy to figure out. Especially when you take all the gospel accounts and you put them together, particularly the account of Matthew and John. John's account has a lot more of the dialogue between Pilate and, uh, and Jesus. John's account also includes some other elements in it that none of the other gospels do. But, but Matthew also includes some elements that none of the other gospels do. He's, a, he's an interesting character. He's complicated. He's, been, he's read of in the scriptures as being somewhat a sympathetic character. Even though we know from history that he was a typically brutal Roman governor. He wasn't a good guy in the sense that we think of a good guy. He's just a guy, though, who is caught in a situation where he has the very word of God made flesh standing in front of him. And I think what we see in Pilate is a guy that goes into the situation thinking one thing and comes out very unsure about what he should do. Because when he meets, the, when he meets Jesus, in my opinion, what you see in him is he goes through this mind shift and he doesn't really, he's no longer confident about how he's going to handle this. Because to, to know, you need to know some context. Before Jesus had come along, people would come along claiming to be Messiah fairly often. In Pilate's own governorship, he had put down people claiming to be the Messiah five times before Jesus comes along. And he does so after Jesus as well. But the interesting thing was is that the significant difference is all of these other people claiming to Messiah, be Messiah, they were always violent. They would come with their, with their accusations against Rome and Roman oppression. They would usually win the first battle they got into because they would take a Roman garrison by surprise. It wouldn't be a garrison, it would be like a small patrol because the Romans were spread out pretty thin, actually. And, uh, and they would win the first battle, get all excited, and then Rome would get its feet under them. Pilate would get his soldiers under them, and then they would just go and crush whoever had started this fight. He had done this five times. We know their names. 
before Jesus comes along. And so Pilate is well-versed in dealing with upstarts. And I think he goes into this thing thinking, I'm just going to put this guy down just like I put down everyone else. But he comes out of it changed somehow. In fact, his change is so profound that a lot of people believe that somehow these, these accounts can't be true. Because the way Pilate responds to Jesus and then responds to the crowd for Jesus' sake is just completely unexpected. And the other thing we need to also keep in mind as we read this is these passages, this one particularly in Matthew here where, where he says, you know, what should I do if uh, Jesus called the Christ? And they say, crucify him. He says, well, then he washes his hands, says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And it says, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and be on our children. Historically, this has been one of the scriptures that has caused a lot of anti-Semitism from the church toward Jews. Because they say, well, the Jews called down the curse on them. They deserve it. They are the Christ killers. And then John, and we'll look at the passage later on, John has the high priest, not just the people. Matthew is all about the people. If you notice, if you read through it, the crowd is mentioned time and time and time again. John is about the, the priesthood. And John makes it clear in the Gospel of John. It says, the high priest said, we have no king but Caesar. And these passages over the years have been used to be a justification to, be, to treat Jews with contempt and you know, burning them out of house and home, holding them in, in, in very low regard, of course, leading to the most horrible event that the Jews have dealt with. And unfortunately, that was right here in this nation, in the Holocaust. And so it's important to understand that when these were written, when the Gospels were written, Matthew... Mark and John in particular, they were written from the point of view of Jews who believed in the risen Messiah to fellow Jews who had placed themselves under a temple leadership who had denied the role of God as their king and instead had said, Caesar is our king. And it's hard for us to get our heads around how important that is because most people, as we consider Christians today, don't come from a Jewish heritage. For example, how many of you have a Jewish heritage? that you come from. Look at all those hands. The early church was almost entirely Jewish. And then it, it develops and becomes more and more a church of the Gentiles. And so when this is being written, when these Gospels are being written, they're being written by people who were Jews, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and the reason why they believed it is because they had witnessed the resurrection. There have been lots of people claiming to be Messiah before Jesus. Why aren't they on his side? Why don't we ever know any of those guys? We know their names in history because of one historian named Josephus who wrote some stuff down. But why don't we know of them? Because they died and that was the end of the story. Jesus was unique in that he rose from the grave. And so the Gospels are basically saying uh, from, you know, each, from a, a, one Jew to another... Why would you follow a temple leadership who has claimed that the pagan emperor is king when we have a Messiah who has overcome sin and death? So that's the context in which this is happening. And what happened over history is that as the church became more and more non-Jewish and kind of grew out of Judaism, then these passages started to be interpreted as a Christian accusation towards Jews. But that's not how these were written. 
These were written from fellow Jews to fellow Jews. We see that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Why don't you follow him? Why are you following a temple leadership that has abdicated the authority of God and exchanged it for the authority of a pagan Roman emperor who is worshipped as a god? So it's important to understand that as we go through it because even the world today will claim that Christianity is the cause of anti-Semitism and they'll point to these scriptures and they don't know what they're talking about because they don't understand the context in which these were written. So let's be clear about that, that there is no place to use these passages against people who are Jewish. And as we remember, the initial writers of the account were Jews and who believed in Jesus as Messiah. Really, their main point they're making in all these passages is this, that Pilate who was a typically brutal pagan governor, saw more of the truth about Jesus than did the Jews who were the temple elites, including the high priests and the elders, almost especially the high priests and the elders. Pilate saw more in the truth of Jesus as the Messiah for the Jews, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles, as the scriptures tell us, than did the people who were the, the high priests. And they found that, the, the gospel writers found that just incredible. How can we continue, how can we as a Jewish people continue to follow this leadership when we have the risen Messiah? And so that's the emphasis that they're making, and that's really the emphasis that they make on Pilate and why he's such an important figure. It's not that Pilate was a nice guy. It's just that they found it astonishing that this pagan sees more of the truth about the Jewish Messiah than the high priest himself. And the irony of the whole thing was that Pilate, he wasn't just a little bit of a pagan. He was a serious, hardcore pagan. Like He wore the t-shirt and everything. Because I'm a pagan. But he was well known. He, he believed and he was a passionate supporter of this thing called the imperial cult. And uh, the word cult... The way we use it means usually a negative thing, but if you get into, if you ever study religion and you get into it, the word cult comes from the word cultus. It just means a system of belief. And it's weird when you're first time in seminary and you hear about the Christian cultus, you're like, wait a minute, what are you saying? Uh, it's just a system of belief. We use the word cult now as a negative thing, but uh, technically it's just, and he's part of this imperial cult that believed who worshiped the emperor as a god. And Pilate was, he was all in. It probably was good for his career to be all in because he was stuck out in Judea, which was kind of a backwater of the Roman emperor, empire. And if he wanted to get in good, he had to be in good with the emperor. And in fact, one of the proofs that we have of Pilate outside the Bible that he existed is that his name is carved into a stone where he dedicated a temple in the city of Caesarea to be built for worshiping the emperor. And we have that in museums. You can go and see his name carved in there. You can go to Caesarea today. Caesarea still exists. And Pilate lived in Caesarea for the most part. So he was a, he was a pagan. In fact, when he first came to Jerusalem, the first time that it's recorded he comes to Jerusalem, he comes with a standard. On the top of it was the carved image of the emperor. And the people in Jerusalem freaked out because there is to be no graven images carried into Jerusalem and be part of Jerusalem. And Pilate went before the elders and the chief priests. And this is where they, they actually uh, they, they gave a good account of themselves. He said, 
you can worship your God all you want. You just need to include the Roman gods, which every other people on the earth that had been conquered by the Romans said, fine, we'll do that. Maybe not with a lot of passion, but they just kind of went, yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll add in the Roman gods too. But the Jews said, no, we're not doing that. This is a complete no-go. And Pilate basically said, well, if you don't, I'm going to put to death all the leadership then. And they sat down and bared their throats and said, put us to death then. And it so shocked Pilate that he backed off of it. And from that point on, he's always struggling to know what he's, what he's supposed to do with this, this Jewish people that refused to worship anything other than their God. A God who, which, by the way, a general named Pompey, years before, had gone into the temple after the conquest of Jerusalem, looking to see what this Jewish God was about. And he came out, and they asked him, what did you see in the temple? And he said, nothing. There's nothing in the temple. The Jews worship an invisible God. There was no statues. There was not even the Ark of the Covenant back then. What do we do with a group of people whose God is invisible? So the, the Roman mindset in this whole thing was very different than, than the Jewish mindset and even different than our mindset today. And the Passover that was taking place during this time was, a, was not just a celebration of religion. It wasn't just a celebration of, of you know, what it meant to be Jewish. It was also a political statement because during Passover, the, the population of Jerusalem would explode like 10 times the amount of people. And what was the Passover celebrating? You remember? It was celebrating God's liberation of the Jewish people when they were under the yoke of the Egyptian empire. Right? Remember that story? So Passover, with all these Romans standing around, these Jews are like, God delivered us back then from an empire that's older than you Romans and he'll do it again so Passover was a politically charged time and Pilate knew it Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem he lived in Caesarea but he would come to Jerusalem on the feast days and bring with him extra soldiers because he knew what was going on he knew this was politically charged so this is the atmosphere and then in the particular Passover we're talking about today, there was this fellow named Jesus. And Jesus was an unusual guy because he was, getting the, he was getting the people on his side. Hearts and minds were going towards Jesus. But he never spoke against Rome. Unlike all the others that claimed to be a Messiah, Jesus never says anything really against Rome. That makes him a bit remarkable. The other thing that made him remarkable is that he was nonviolent. All the other people claiming to be messiahs would go out, they'd yell about the oppression of Rome, take up their swords, go fight, win a battle or two, and then get crushed. But Jesus was, yeah, he wasn't violent. And in fact, instead of attacking Rome, he was attacking the leadership of the temple. The high priests, the elders, saying that they were hypocrites. And that they were misleading the people. And he gets hot with his rhetoric. It's his zeal about his, dis, his uh, disappointment and lack of uh, affection for the leadership of the temple. You read it and you can feel it. You Woe to you, you Pharisees. You hypocrites! You wash yourselves and look good on the outside, but inside you're just like a tomb with dead man bones inside. You're nothing. 
And also, on top of that, you have to keep in mind something that's very significant. Pilate, he couldn't control who the Jews worshipped. He had tried that. It didn't work. Governors before him. He's not, he wasn't the first Roman governor. There were governors before him. They figured this out. Pilate tried to come in and be tough about it and realize, oh, that's not going to work. But one of the things they could control as the governor is who was the high priest of Judaism. The governor of the Roman governor, the pagan Roman governor, appointed the Jewish high priest. Now, to give you some context, how would you feel if someone who wasn't a Christian, someone who believes something very different from us, say someone who is a, a Muslim, a hardcore Muslim, a Shiite follower of the Ayatollahs, it was his responsibility to appoint the pastor of IBCD. How would you feel about that? How would you feel knowing you had no choice in who is the pastor? And not only that, but it was appointed by someone who didn't even believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How would you feel about that? Would you be okay with that? Would you be supportive of that pastor? Would you want to be part of that church? Well, neither did the common Jews. They didn't like the idea that their high priest was appointed by a pagan, Roman, who worshipped the emperor. And Pilate knew that. And this is one reason why Pilate is very, when you read in Matthew, he very much is talking to the crowd most of the time because he knows that there's this discontent. And it's that very discontent that actually people are drawn to Jesus for. Just, Jesus says, these guys in control have no moral authority to be in control of the temple. And a lot of the people who knew that, the, that you know, it was no secret that, that he was appointed, that Caiaphas was appointed by the Roman governor, went, that's right. And Caiaphas knew that too. The leadership of the temple knew that. But this was a problem. And that's where Jesus is causing issues. He's not speaking against the Romans. He's speaking against the people who the Romans have appointed as authorities of Judaism. So Pilate actually has kind of a vested interest in Caiaphas working through this and coming out on the other side as the victor. That's how he goes into this with his head. And, and so Jesus is brought before Pilate. And because the authorities, the Jewish authorities, didn't have the right to put Jesus to death, even though later on in the book of Acts, they just go ahead and stone some of the Christians to death because at that point they're like, ah, we're going to kill him anyway. And the other Gospels, particularly John, there's this banter that goes on back and forth between Pilate and Jesus. But Matthew's not really as interested in that. He has a different point that he wants to make. So in Matthew's Gospel, it gets right to it. It says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. Now, if you read some of the other Gospel accounts, this goes back and forth a bit more. Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I have a kingdom that's not of this world. And then there's this kind of back and forth. But Matthew's not really interested in that. He's, he's getting to the point that he thinks is the most important. So once Pilate hears that, okay, this guy thinks he's a king, it would still seem strange to Pilate that he would claim to be king with no army. But then to, that, to Pilate, that would mean this guy really has no power. Because in his Roman mind, you cannot claim to be a king or you cannot claim to be an emperor without the force of violence to back it up. How do you back it up without an army? It's out of his way of thinking. So that's one reason why he doesn't really see Jesus as much of a threat, even though he claims to be a king. Then he wants to say, he wants to know if Jesus really understands what the temple elites are saying about him. And you have to remember, Pilate appointed Caiaphas, and Caiaphas has probably come to Pilate. 
and said, this guy's causing trouble. And then they were accusing him. And we read in the Gospel of John that they didn't come into the house of, Caiaph of Pilate during this interview because they wanted to keep themselves clean for the Passover. Because it's important to keep yourself ritualistically clean as you're planning to murder somebody. So Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But at this point, Jesus doesn't reply. He doesn't, not even to a single charge. He doesn't even give it the time of day. And this amazes Pilate. And again, in other Gospels, he goes back and forth to Jesus there. Aren't you going to answer me? But then, Pilate makes the decision to go in front of the people. And it's interesting in verse 18, if you have it, I, didn't, I forgot to put it on the screen there, so if you have your Bibles. Verse 18 says that Pilate understood what was really going on here. Pilate wasn't stupid. He says, for he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate knows. He's probably heard Caiaphas complaining, this guy's turning the hearts and minds of all the people away from us. And something needs to be done about this guy. So Pilate knows what's going on. He's not dumb. And I believe the next step Pilate takes after he's been in the presence of Jesus is he also understands that there is, there is a people power thing going on here. He knows that the people, the common Jews, are not happy with the temple elites. In fact, we have writings this day that were found, they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you have heard of them. They were found near the Dead Sea and in the 1940s. And some of them are, are gospel, uh, Old Testament uh, scriptures. Some of them are just teachings from this, from this group called the Essenes. They think they're the Essenes uh, that lived there and their own teachings. And they would call the people that ran the temple the sons of Satan. The Essenes hated the temple the temple elites. They saw them as sellouts. The Pharisees didn't like them either very much. So, Pilate goes, all right, let's see if, uh, if the people, where's, where's the wind going to blow here? If I just do what the high priest wants to do, and I know these folks, according to the high priest, have an affection for this Jesus character, which Pilate probably didn't care about one way or the other until he met him. I'll let the people decide this. And so we to we're told that there was a, a custom he had to give, out, give away, uh, give back to the people, a prisoner. And one of the prisoners is a guy named Barabbas. And the scripture says at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now Barabbas, uh, we know a little bit more from the Gospel of Luke. Luke says he's more than just a notorious prisoner. He had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And from extra-biblical sources, we know that this insurrection was one where temple money was being taken to build a Roman aqueduct, a, a way for water to be moved around. And these still exist today. You see them around, ruins of them. And this caused a fiore. You can't take, in the minds of the Jews, temple money dedicated to God and use it to build a Roman engineering project. And so there was a fight over this, and this is likely the insurrection in the city that Barabbas was a part of, and, in, and he probably killed a fellow Jew in the fight, because if he'd killed a Roman, he'd be dead already. So in the midst of the fight, he probably kills another Jewish guy. And so this is who's brought before the people. You can choose between Jesus, or you can choose between this guy. You can choose Jesus, who is the Christ, or you can choose between him or Barabbas, whose name means son of God, ironically. Who do you want? 
the true son of God or this false son of God? And because Barabbas had been part of an insurrection against Rome, there was a certain amount of sympathy toward him. And so when he offers them, offers Barabbas to them, they begin to say that they want to have him. But before they get into that, this is where Matthew does something very Matthew-ish. He splits the story of Pilate, Barabbas, and Jesus with a sudden account that kind of comes out of nowhere. It's like parachuted right into the middle of it, which says this. So look, they're talking about Jesus and Barabbas. The crowd had gathered. Pilate asked, uh, Pilate asked the Jews, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? And then it goes to a whole different thing. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And then it picks back up on the, on the Barabbas and Jesus story. But the chief priests and the elders, persuaded the crowd, persuaded by the crowd, asked for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Now this picture is misleading because there's no way Pilate would bring his wife to Rome during this tense time. Probably what she did, she had this dream. She gave it to a messenger. They lived in Caesarea. That person probably rode all night to get to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, this is all going on. And he just hands it to, to Pilate while he's in the middle of this thing. But it's interesting because Matthew, like we've said, Matthew tends to put into the middle of his accounts the things that he finds the most significant. And here he not just puts it into the middle of the Pilate story. He actually breaks up the story of Jesus and Barabbas to put it right in the middle. And this is significant. This tells us that Matthew, for whatever reason, finds this to be very important information. It's unique to Matthew. No other gospel has this little aspect where, where Pilate is warned by his wife, do not have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So what is going on there? What is Matthew trying to tell us? And this is where Pilate gets very complicated. Because after receiving the message not to have anything to do with this innocent man, Pilate decides that he is going to do everything he can to prevent Jesus' execution. Now, whatever it means to have nothing to do with this innocent man, Pilate, the way he responds to it is to go in and get very involved with Jesus. And the way he gets involved with Jesus is he begins to do something that is unheard of. He begins to appeal to the crowd. You have to remember, this is a Roman governor. He doesn't need to appeal to anybody. He is there under the authority of Caesar. And if he wanted to have everyone in that crowd crucified, he could do it. Romans had done it before. When Spartacus, who was this famous slave revolt, uh, revolted against uh, uh, Rome... The Romans took them, when they finally defeated Spartacus, they took those slaves and they crucified them along the Appian Way, two miles of people crucified. So that when people entered Rome, they would know this is what happens if you ever dare to defy the authority of Rome. Two miles of people crucified. So Pilate's, Pilate's not a soft touch here, but he appeals to the crowd. 
it's like, it's, it's a bizarre, it, to outward people, secular scholars, this is one reason why they say this can't be true, because it is such an unusual thing that he would appeal to the crowd for the sake of a peasant Jew. But that's what he does. He says in the scripture, he first starts by, when they say they want Barabbas, he says, well, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? John has him say, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? And the truth is he probably used both these titles. What do you want me to do with your Messiah? What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? And there's no hint in here that he did this in an ironic or mocking way. I think what he was doing was he was trying to get the people on the side of Jesus by referring to Jesus as the Messiah and by referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews. But the scripture tells us that the chief priests and the elders had already persuaded the people to turn against Christ. And so instead of this bringing the people over to the side of Christ, it further enrages them. Because he's using titles that the chief priests and elders have gotten the people to believe are blasphemy titles. And so instead of them coming over to the side of Jesus, they react in a way that is much more violent and they just go nuts. And they start screaming for his crucifixion. And Pilate, at this point, kind of steps back. And he realizes that this isn't going to work. The people power isn't going to work. It says, when he saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, which means a riot was going to get ready to start. And you have to remember, even though there was Roman soldiers there, they were vastly outnumbered by the Jews that were in the city during Passover. He took water and he washed his hands and, and he says, this is where Matthew keeps talking about the crowd. He does it in front of the crowd because it's about the crowd. It's about this people power. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. John puts more of the responsibility upon the leadership of the temple. He doesn't talk about Pilate washing his hands. It says, but when they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And again, this comes back to this idea. This is why the Jews who are believers in Jesus as the risen Messiah, this is the question they're asking. They go, why are we still following? Why are you still following the temple leadership that has taken themselves out from under the rulership of God and placed themselves under the rulership of Caesar. Why would you do that? That's the question that, that, that these gospels are asking. And then Pilate washes his hands of Jesus. And he ends up being the guy who, in spite of his intentions, it seems his apparent intentions were trying to advocate for Jesus, He becomes the guy who officially condemns Jesus to death. So he ends up doing the very opposite thing that he seems to have been wanting to do all along, which is advocate for Christ. And this is a, it's an interesting passage because as we look at Pilate here, the question kind of comes to our mind, what do you make of this guy? We know he's not a soft touch from other places of history. We know he puts down insurrections against the peace of Rome without thinking twice about it. But Jesus was different. Jesus wasn't violent. 
And I think there's something about also being in the very presence of the word of God made flesh that caused Pilate's little pagan brain to go in directions he didn't quite understand. And then his wife comes along, which is about the fourth time, I think in the scriptures, fourth or fifth time that you have God use someone who is not a believer, not a Jew. Christianity doesn't really exist at this point. We would call them a pagan prophet to speak to him and say, nothing, have nothing to do with this innocent man. And Pilate takes her seriously. He does listen to her. But here's where Pilate goes wrong, in my opinion. He is told to have nothing to do with this innocent man. He's not told to help this innocent man. He was told, he was warned, have nothing to do with Jesus. But what does he do? He tries to take control of the situation. This is where Pilate is very human. He's told, don't have anything to do with him. And we have no idea what that would even look like because that's not what happens. Instead of having nothing to do with him, he doubles down. And he says, well, then I'm going to stand in and I'm going to take control of the situation. And what he ends up doing is he ends up making the situation worse because he's trying to take control. He's not listening to the warning from his wife, which is there, there's a lesson in there, men, by the way. You know, listen. But he doesn't listen, I think, because he, does it, he ignores his wife. He thinks this is the best way to do it. The best thing that he should do in order to not have anything to do with this innocent man is to try and control the fate of this innocent man. And that's not what he was told to do. He's told to have nothing to do with him. And as a result, Pilate becomes the person who pushes the event of the crucifixion and the cross further down the stream of destiny. Because when it all goes wrong for him, he signs the death warrant. It's Pilate's authority that sends Jesus to the cross. And I think there's some interesting lessons that we can learn in this. Because I don't want to give the impression that we should have nothing to do with Christ. That's not really what his wife was advocating. His wife is just saying, don't have anything to do with this trial that's going to lead to this man's death. And as Christians, obviously, we should have something to do with Christ. We need to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is, and we should follow him and take him as our Lord and Savior. But we need to be careful about the idea that we can somehow control the calling of God in our lives. Because we have a tendency as human beings to say, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow Christ as my Lord, but it's going to look like this. And we want, we want to take control of it. And that's just our human tendency. That's our human pride. This is the hubris of, of Pilate, that he believes that he can take control of this situation. And as a result, he ends up being on the wrong side of history. He becomes the guy who officially sends Jesus to the cross. And this little bit here I'm going to share with you is kind of speculation. I believe the cross was destined. That's not speculation. Jesus told his disciples time and time again, this is going to happen. But the role that Pilate plays in it, maybe that could have been different. Maybe he really could have been someone that followed the advice given to him to have nothing to do with this innocent man, and the story of Pilate would be different. I think the cross still would have happened. I know the cross still would have happened. But maybe Pilate's role would have been different. And I think this is one of the things that affects us today, because here's this thing here. The cross was destiny. It was going to happen. Jesus even said, this is going to happen four times before this even takes place. But how Pilate responded to destiny, that was his choice. 
And one of the things we see in the Bible over and over again, and it's, a, it's an area of great debate among believers, is the idea of what is clearly in the Bible, the idea of a predestined destiny for humanity. And then we also have within the Bible this, this tension that is there in this place of fellowship that is up to you. If anyone chooses to be my disciple, they must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. There's an if in there. How do those things go together? How does the destiny of the cross move forward, and it's going to move forward? But then how does Pilate's choice of how he responds to that affect his life? And this is a tension that we have as believers. And what we tend to do as believers, we tend to focus on one, one aspect of it or another because our personality likes a certain aspect. People who like everything to be neat and in order, they tend to be over, way over on the predestined side. People that like the idea of, you know, I'm free to be you and me, they tend to be over on the free will side. And these two sides have fought for centuries. And they continue to do so. But this is how I see it. And this is just me. You can take this or leave this. I see human destiny as definitely being on a path that God has already chosen. I believe the scripture tells us that. We start from the Garden of Eden. We end in the city of God. In the end, we're kind of back at the beginning. The tree of life is there again. The difference is, as human beings, we have changed. We have grown. We're not as naive. We're not naive like Adam and Eve were about sin and death. We understand sin and death at the end of the Bible. The Christians do who are with God. This pathway is clear. And I see it like a boat, like a ship that is bound from New York to London. It's a ship that's bound, and I didn't come up with this. This is something else I took from someone else. But it's a ship that's bound from New York to London. And that ship's route has been determined. It's destined. It's not going to go from New York to Venezuela. It's not going to go from New York to Cape Town. It's going to go from New York to London. That is clear. That has been decided. The captain, the crew, they all know this is where the ship is going. And the people on the ship are destined to go from New York to London. They don't have any control of it. They can't go up to the captain and say, hey, we want to go somewhere else. It's not, it's not possible. But how the people interact with each other on that journey, the friendships they make, the enemies they make, the things that they involve themselves in, the things that they don't involve themselves in, the people that they, the, the, the places their, their hearts and minds go while they're on that journey, that's the choices they make. The journey, the destination is clear, London to New York to London. But how people, what people do on the boat during that journey, that's a lot of choice. The cross was destiny. How Pilate responded to that destiny was his choice. And I think there's a lesson in there for us as Christians when it comes to controlling the plan of God. We're told all the time God has a plan for us. And I think that as human beings, sometimes we respond to this idea of God has a plan for us as being, well, great, I'm glad God has a plan for us. Let me get in there and make sure the plan goes the way I want it to go. Let me make sure I get in there and control this plan. But the truth is, we don't have that kind of control. And we're not given that kind of control. Death to self means you're giving up the control of your life into the hands of God. You're trusting His plan. It doesn't mean that you just kind of drift through life like a, like a feather in the wind, like Forrest Gump. We're not to be a church of Forrest Gumps, just kind of following along, hoping that you know, we run into these 
life-changing situations. If you don't know the movie, don't worry about it. But we are to trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey according to the old hymn, right? And that trusting and obeying means you're getting into the stream of God and you're following him. And Jesus says even the same thing about himself. One time he says to his disciples, I don't do anything on my own. I do what the Father has shown me. And it's not saying that Jesus is just kind of, kind of robot waiting for his orders to be downloaded into his brain every morning. But what he's saying is he is so close to the Father that he knows the plan of God. And instead of trying to change that plan, he goes with it and trusts it. The only time we see Jesus really begin to really struggle with the plan is in the garden right before the cross. He keeps saying, he says three times, if there's another way besides this plan, take this cup from me if it's all possible. But then he always goes back to the plan, but not my will be done, but your will be done. And as he goes through that plan, he ends up being on the other side of being the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And for us as believers, it's a little bit that same way. Obviously, none of us are Jesus. But when you, that plan that God has for your life, it's God's plan for your life. It's not your plan that God gives a blessing on. It's God's plan. And you have no say. You have no say where you were born. You had no say what family you were born into. You had no say what country you were born into. You had no say what economic status you were born into. It's all part of God's plan. And you can either fight him and resent him or you can try and control him. Both of those end up leading on the wrong side of history. Or you can trust him, obey him, and follow him. And believe that where you come out on the other end is exactly where God wants you to be. And that can be hard sometimes. But for the most part, it's a blessing to realize that it's not really up to you. It's up to you to know God and to follow him. It's not up to you to try and control everything. I think this is where Pilate failed. And, you know, this is his first experience with God. He'd never gone to Sunday school. He didn't know this. He believes I'm the Roman governor. I am large and I am in charge. And when my wife says, have nothing to do with the innocent man, he interprets that as do everything you can to help this guy. And he ends up being the guy who, ironically, is the official one that condemns Jesus to death. So keep that in mind, because I know that a lot of folks in our church, you're, you tend to be the people that are A-type personalities. We have a lot of people that are very successful in IBCD, and you're, and you're successful because you're driven, and you have a plan, you follow the plan, you're very disciplined, and I admire you guys. But be careful, because in your strength, which you guys have a lot of strength to make things go the way you want them to go in the world, be careful that you don't run ahead of the plan of God or ignore it altogether because you want to control it and have it turn out your way. Because if you do that, then you end up in a place you don't want to be. Instead, while you do everything you can to be the best you can for God, trust him and his plan. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you in your word that we have these very rich characters, people 
real people, and you see it in the, in the struggles that they have, and Pilate is one of them, you know, that he's, he's very much a person who has been affected by your presence but doesn't really know what to do with it, doesn't really know how to handle it. And Lord, there's times that we feel the same way. We're affected by your presence, but we don't really know what are we supposed to do. Are we supposed to, you know, sell everything and take to the streets? Are we supposed to quit our jobs and go into vocational ministry? Are we, what are we supposed to do? And I know we all struggle with that. So, Father, we pray that you would help us as your believers to trust in your control. It's not up to us to figure out the plan. It's up to us just to follow you. Day by day, week by week, year by year. And to believe that you have our, as the scripture says, you have our days numbered out. And that every step that we take is a step that you already have planned. And as we grow to trust you, and we grow to follow you. We'll grow to know you better. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. It's so profound and so deep. And help us to take to heart the lessons, at least Matthew's lesson, about Pilate. A guy who was affected by you, but still tried to control his fate and actually your own fate the fate of Jesus Christ, and that was just simply out of Pilate's hands. But he had, didn't have the humility to realize it. So he tried to wash his hands instead. Help us to die to self, daily, weekly, hourly, so that we follow you, to know you, to be in your presence, to be salt and to be light in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.